Are you suffering from back pain? Well, I've got the thing just for you. 15 surefire tips for relieving back pain, plus 192 others just in case, volume 1, available at Amazon.com. Over 30 million Americans are suffering with back pain at this very moment. The vast majority of these cases are either caused or exacerbated by common lifestyle factors. Many of the same factors may be causing you pain right now. Join board-certified physician Andrew Kirshner as he guides you through the parts of your life where these problems occur and gives you simple, safe and effective solutions for these common daily pitfalls. In this fun and informative book, you will learn how to identify the aspects of your life which may be causing you pain, how to create a back-friendly environment, how you can improve your pain by improving your sleep, ways to make a pain-free commute, how you can perform daily activities without making your pain worse, and much more. Andrew Kirshner is so well respected in the field of back pain relief. He has you know, famous clients such as DJ Jazzy Jeff. He has done uh, many talks and lectures at universities in the UK. He has appeared on QVC demonstrating back pain relief products and that is because he is an expert in his field and people trust him. Also check out the 5 star reviews on Amazon.com. This is the book that you need if you suffer from back pain. That's 15 surefire tips for relieving back pain plus 192 of us just in case volume 1 available at Amazon.com in paperback. Check the link below the show for more information. Just when you thought that there were already too many podcasts in the world. Here comes another one. Day or not, people say he's got a really, really, really gigantic personality. But if you ask me, he's the Rex of Boxer Taylor Locke. People say he's a prodigy.
Hello kids, welcome to another episode of Pablo's Poppin' Podcast. I hope everyone's doing okay on this uh, on this very, very insanely hot uh, spring day. It's still spring here, spring's my favourite time of year, but uh, uh, the, it's not necessarily the heat, I can handle the heat, but I, I, if you've listened to previous episodes, I have the worst hay fever and I have sinus problems as well, which just makes me an awful person to be around. Um, so yeah, you may hear the fan in the background and you may hear nature outside because the window is open. Um, you know, you know, it's a risk when you leave the window open because you let bees, wasps and everything. But I've noticed wasps, they're not good for anything. They don't make honey. But they are like laser-guided missiles. They, you know, find their way in and find their way out pretty quickly. Bees are fools. You know, they do make honey. They are wonderful. But uh, once they're in your room, you can kind of shepherd them out. You know, I, I would never kill a bee. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, you do run the risk of having stuff like fly into your face and, you know. Uh, luckily, I live in Newcastle in the UK and luckily we don't have things, flying things that kill you, basically. Um, it has been a little while, you know, life gets in the way, but um, I've been racking up the guests and uh, some amazing guests and you will hear about them after the interview with today's guest, Mr. Taylor Locke. Now, Taylor is, um, you know, y you will remember him as the uh, guitarist in Rooney. Um, they are, I believe they're working on new stuff as well, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Taylor is currently playing guitar for Sparks, which is just mind-blowing, because uh, they're going to be coming to the UK, but it's really annoying, because when they are here, I'm going to be in LA, which, I mean, is, is like an amazing reason. I shouldn't complain about that at all. But, um, yeah, I did get offered a ticket to, uh, to come as well, so hopefully he stays in the band for a while, so then I get to see him play with Sparks. Um... <coughs> So yeah, um, it was a great chat with uh, Taylor. I've, I've, you know, obviously I've talked to guys who Taylor is connected with, uh, Chris Price, you know, Taylor Lock and the Ruffs, uh, Fernando Podomo, obviously, you know, Roger Manning, etc. And um, it's just really nice to, you know, uh, he had listened to a couple of shows with Pat Badger and with Chris, and um, he was just up for being on the show. You know, I would have asked him a while ago, but I just kind of, I didn't know if he'd be up for such a thing. Um, and, you know, especially at this present moment, because it's not like he is promoting anything in particular, but it meant that we got to talk about a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, I've worked with Taylor in the past. Uh, we uh, He played guitar on a track called Let Me Sleep, which is on the Bus Therapy album, available at toxicmelons.bandcap.com. Get that out of the way. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it's some of the best guitar work on any Toxic Melons track, I think. He is amazing. You know, he's, uh, he's such a great singer. No one sounds like him with the harmonies that he puts together which he really explored a lot uh, on his uh, solo album and I'll be playing a track from uh, that album and links to buy it are below from the wonderful Low Jinx Records um, they, you know, they're connected in the power pop world as well. They put on the Jason Faulkner gig, which was in London, and uh, it was very nice to meet Andy and uh, you know those involved in the label. So yeah, um, it's kind of weird. Like you know, my um, my gig is in September, so you know, uh, in LA, which is mind blowing. Uh, Chris Price and Fernando Podomo are going to be in my band. Uh, Jason Downs, uh, previous guest. 
um, is going to be playing throughout the night. This is just it's an amazing thing that I'm going to get to play with some of my favorite musicians and just get to meet lots of cool people. Uh, yeah, so apart from that, you know, there's not really a lot of stuff going on in life at the moment, but it's kind of nice. You know, it's given me a chance to write. Um, yeah, I'm getting songs finished for uh, what will be eventually the next album. Um, the next Toxic Melons gig in the UK won't be until October for Oxjam. Um, so it's a little while away yet. And, you know, it's just the band I love the band and they are amazing but after the calving gigs where I think we could have played better but we didn't have enough time to rehearse you know I just think that we need to really get our game together and you know it's just going to take a little while and you know but meh it's all good and, you know it's a, it's, a, it's a good time to be alive basically and I've just dug out all of my old uh, consoles I've always had the Super Nintendo set up um, and I've got the GameCube. The, the free, the Xbox One is kind of wasted on me because I don't use it for games. Um, but I've just dug out the uh, the Mega Drive, the Master System 2, Alex the Kid built in, and uh, what else? Oh yeah, the original PlayStation as well. Um, but I'm, I'm going to get a PS2. Uh, well, no, I've got a PS2. Gary, my bassist, has had it for about eight years now because uh, I've been too lazy to get it back. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to get that and uh, just start, you know embracing my inner child like like I don't do that anyway uh, you know it's 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 also something that you can do when you're single I'm gonna you know whoever I find they're gonna have to have very specific tastes to match mine basically but yes <laughs> I'm not gonna waste too much more of your time uh, thank you to the sponsor um, good friend collaborator I uh, played with him at the cabin, going to be seeing him out in LA, um, Andrew Kirshner and uh, 15 Surefire Tips for Relieving Back Pain, can't recommend the book enough, um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm very sincere about this, you know, that if you buy the book and you know, it's something practical for your everyday life, it really does support the show, because he sponsors the show and helps keep me running, basically, and um, you know, he can't do that if book sales don't happen basically so um so i really really appreciate you checking it out and just share it with people recommend it if you know someone who could do with that kind of book in their life um i you know really really appreciate it thanks to the other sponsors as well uh, which you will hear uh, throughout the show um what else oh yes so yeah just generally news on how to keep you running you know that score by now um there's a big green button at the top of the podbean page uh become a patreon and uh or donate to the show i can't remember it's been a little while since i've seen it but basically if you want to just give me money and again i always feel a little uncomfortable asking about that but if you want to just give me money to help keep the show running and because you know you like the sound of my sexy voice uh then you can do that um but you can also become a sponsor if you like and i will you know create advertising to suit whatever you would like to advertise um you know as long as it's not i don't know I'm sort of um, I don't know well anything really as long as it's not illegal basically I'll advertise it um, <laughs> not that I'm a whore or anything like that um, yeah so you can you can pledge but also check out my music at toxicmelons.bandcamp.com because then you also receive something in return my wonderful wonderful music featuring with guys like Taylor Locke Chris Price Fernando Podomo Linus of Hollywood, Roger Joseph Manning Jr., Eric Dover, and so many more. And speaking of Roger and Eric, uh, the four-player EP, I've been trying to keep people as up-to-date as possible. Not everyone receives my messages on Kickstarter, which is annoying. 
Um, but Eric and Roger have signed the EPs. I am waiting for Eric to uh, mail them back to me. Uh, there are a couple of, uh, you know, it's just some things that Eric has to iron out before he mails them out. And uh, but then I can mail them out. And I know it's coming up to a year now, which is, oh, as he leans back on his chair, um, which, uh, you know, is far too long to get all the shit out of the way. But, um, yeah, it'll be worth it. And um, anyone, if you have pledged the, towards the Kickstarter uh, and you are listening to the show, I appreciate your patience more than anything and just hang on tight a little bit longer and then you will receive everything that you have pledged for. So yes, thank you very much. Um, before we go into my interview with Taylor, oh, also you can subscribe on iTunes and um, you know you will get the latest show directly into your device of what, you know, your, your Tamagotchi or, you know, that's what they need to make. They need to make a Tamagotchi that is also an iPod. No, probably not. That's probably the worst idea of all time. Um, subscribe on iTunes. Feel free to leave me a five-star review. Whether, you know, it, it, as long as I deserve it, you know. But I'll also take any criticism as long as it's constructive. Uh, if you just call me shit, then, you know, that kind of doesn't really help. Because uh, <laughs> sometimes I have no self-esteem. I don't. I'm wonderful. Um, so yes, yeah, so you can do all that kind of stuff, and please recommend it to people. Um, you know, I always play some great unsigned music. Always have some great guests, and uh, yeah, good stuff. And uh, like I say, after the Taylor episode, you will hear about more guests coming up. So before we go into my interview with Mr. Taylor Lock, the handsome, wonderful Taylor Lock. Um, I'm going to play you a track from his solo album, Time Stand Still. This is called Running Away From Love. And do check out the music video on YouTube because it's a lot of fun. I really want a couch car. <laughs> and there is nudity in it as well, which is always a good thing. So this is Running Away From Love. And then we'll be going straight into my interview with Taylor Lock. Love, running, running away. Running away from love. Running away.
so with me on Pablo's Poppin' Podcast this week is one of the most talented guitarists that I know. He's one of the best singers I know. He's young, he's handsome, it makes you sick, uh, basically. It's uh, it's the Rex of Rock, it's Taylor Locke. How are you doing today, sir? <laughs> I'm good, man. That's, I, I, I forgot about that song. I really, I really like that. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Like I, I knew well. I I loved Rooney, but I I wasn't um, really familiar with the individual members. And it it was Blue who kind of uh, threw that track because he had a list of his uh, birthday commission tracks. That right, he, that, right. That he had. Have you have you interviewed Blue? I haven't. I really, really want to. Well, you've listened to the Pat Badger episode, and I talk about Blue on there. Um, Blue probably strikes me as one of the busiest people in the world. So, like, you know, trying to get him on the show uh, may be harder than I'm, I think, unless unless my good friend Taylor Locke wants to put in a, a good word. I'll, no, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll get him. I'll get him to do it. He's a uh, hundred yards away from me right now. He 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 uses my studio. I'm in my house, and he's out in my studio right now. Oh, awesome. Um, Okay. He's yeah. I could throw a, a a rock at him from where I'm sitting right now. Tell tell um, him tell him that it's the greatest podcast in the world, and uh, tell him I, tell him I reunited Imperial Drag for an episode. Surely that's gonna you know have some weight. I'm gonna write on the rock. You 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 must go on on Pablo's podcast and then throw that rock at him. <laughs> Not at his head though, because you know. Just at his, <laughs> at, at his knee or something like that, because he he doesn't need his knee really to play right. instruments right. or anything like right. that. Um, so how how you know be, with so much I want to cover, but um, how did the relationship with Blue come about? Is that just L.A. being L.A. just you know just amazing musicians getting together and you know you obviously he will have heard of you through Rooney and stuff like that. I'd imagine. Yeah, kind of. We've been friends a long time since I still was in Rooney. We did a record together that. Um, some had well i don't know if we're still maintaining concealed identities or not we did a character record together so i won't say what it was but it shouldn't be that hard to figure out are you Daft, um, are you deaf punk yeah yeah exactly we uh no no <laughs> okay um, i'm uh we're, yeah we're daft punk we're polishing each other's grammys right now <laughs> now we uh we met through john fields who's a fantastic producer who did one of the rooney records uh it was the second one that came out called calling the world i think that's probably oh six or oh seven when that came out hmm. and uh john um, is a, a a major uh, mentor figure for me. I've now been s- sort of producing and engineering c- close to full time now. A lot more of that, and I learned a lot of that from John. And um, you know, a lot of bands they get. For example, you know, the Beatles and George Martin had a thing that ran through the entire course of their career. Yeah. Whereas Ro- Rooney did not. You know, we worked with a lot of different producers um, and even more so than you would find out from looking up our catalog because we have a lot of unreleased things done with different producers. And prior to being professional, just even as a kid, I was kind of like the guy in bands who had a four track and a couple mics and recorded the bands. Um, And I was just, I, I always viewed playing music and the production of recorded music as all part of one thing. Um, so I was always just paying attention to to production and producers, and Rooney worked with so many people, and and I had so many likes and dislikes, and what to do and what not to do from each of them. Mm. Um, and then when I 
sort of started to absorb John's technique, things sort of went into hyper uh, gear for me, where I then I, I really um, took to the, the his methods of working and learned a lot from him. And he was going on and on about Blue, who he, he was saying was such a great songwriter, and 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 Blue was I. Th- think still fairly new to LA then this is like you know 2005 or 6 or 7 something like that yeah I do forget that Blue isn't LA based it was um Boston well, he's, he's yeah and he's got a lot of ties to that scene he's a proud Bostonian mm. um and well celebrated by a lot of Boston musicians so Fields introduced us and we became really close friends and made a record together and um um Cut to a few couple of years ago. More recently, um, we we've been sharing. Um, I, have, I have a studio behind my house, and he was looking for a new studio space, and uh, so he works out here now. And then the Roger keyboard installation thing came along too. So, yeah, a lot of uh, the guys who you've um, followed and spoken of on your podcast are are uh, milling about in my backyard. Uh, if not daily, uh, weekly, at least. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, um, so some of the um, uh, Roger Blue collaborations, um, were they recorded in your studio? Like stuff like um, When the Other Shoe Falls, the sort of heavy synth uh, disco kind of track. I, I don't know if you know the track or not. I mean, if it was recorded at yours, then you probably do know. No, no I mean, well, first of all, that's not necessarily true because there's a lot going on out there all the time and I'm not sitting in on, on, on Blue sessions. But um, I don't think so, because that's probably back from before Blue was here. But I know that um, uh, quite recently, as of maybe last week or even a couple days ago, they've been doing stuff for Roger's um, album here. Uh, they were singing a bunch of harmonies together. So I don't want to spoil the, too much of a giveaway. But yeah, massive jellyfish queen beach boys. Very, very excited about that. I might get an email from Roger saying, like, nah, cut that shit out of the podcast. Um, so we'll see. Right. Nah, I think it'll be fine. Uh, yeah, look, I, I badger Roger. I don't think quite- it's, um, yeah, I don't think it's, um, too much of a spoiler to say the Roger Manning album's going to have a lot of vocal, a lot of singing, a lot of harmonies on it. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's part for the chorus. With, with that album, I mean, we obviously we will get fully into uh, your stuff. With that album, does it shock you slightly that Roger is working with other people on the album? Because obviously his previous stuff, it was all him and it was like, you know, uh, meticulous and, um, you know, is it does it feel a bit looser from what you've heard? And just more sort of having fun, I guess. Mm. I don't know. I don't want to answer okay. for him. I think that from my outside opinion, I think his, his meticulousness will still be there. Yeah. I don't think he's, um, it's not, he, I don't know. I don't think he has an aesthetic, so I don't think he's all of a sudden going to turn around one day and put out something that's like uh live one take kind of thing. Um, not that I, he's, he's probably, I'm sure he's a fan and appreciator of looser things, but for his own artistic output, I think that meticulousness um, is his is his stamp and his and in, in his artistic DNA. And in fact, I think um, the collaborations he's doing probably contribute to even more meticulousness because if you're teaming up with guys like Blue or Chris <laughs> Price, yeah. Uh, or, or whoever else he's working with, these aren't guys who are known for 
um, slopping it together, you know, there it's probably like one meticulous guy multiplied by another meticulous guy. It's probably like exponentially more uh, <laughs> tidy and put together, um, which is what people love and expect and associate yeah. Roger with. So I think it's it's great that um, you know, I, as a fan of Roger and Blue and Chris, I am in the same boat as you as you're in, anticipating uh, hearing some awesome shit from them. Totally. Uh, the first thing that I saw uh, you and Roger do together was the mogul performance. Um, was that? I mean, I'd imagine that was a pretty big deal for you to get to play Jellyfish songs on stage. And uh, the performance, the performance of uh, Everything's Fine as well, is one of my favorite performances of all time because the audience are just so like attentive and just like just eager to hear new music from Roger and Blue. Um, and to the point where at the end, because the first time I heard it, um, I had the volume up quite loud and I wasn't expecting the rapturous applause at the end, which nearly deafened me because um, <laughs> I had headphones on. So, I mean, what, what was that like? Um, was, it was awesome. I yeah. mean, I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than, than those guys. I was probably like the baby in the group. Yeah. Um, which I've kind of been my whole life. I've always played with older musicians, which serves me well because you're sort of so nervous to 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 uh, to blow it that you force yourself to rise to the level. Not that I can or am on the level of some of those cats, but um, yeah. I mean, now that Roger's been like a, a fixture here in my backyard with all his gear and everything, maybe I'm like more uh, used to just being buddies with the guy. But yeah, years ago at that time, I was sort of like, all right, I'm going to learn the. Um, uh, guitar solo on um, that is why, mm-hmm. um, which is originally Jason Faulkner, and it was kind of like, yeah, don't you don't want to fuck that up, you know? <laughs> um, and I ran into Jason not long after um, after that show and told him that I'd done it, and we got a kick out of it. And then years later, Chris Price put Jason and I together playing guitars on the End of Roads record. So yes. it's, I mean, it's cool. It's really cool actually to to just have a very un jaded fanboy moment with you here yeah to go from somebody who listened to those records and picked them apart and studied every chord and harmony and production flourish and guitar lick etc to um to uh play that music alongside roger um or to work with emmett rhodes alongside jason i have a video or maybe chris price has it that we should share as some behind the scenes footage, but there's a, a, um, a song on the Emmett Rhodes record where we did guitars here at my studio and, and Jason and I did, did our two guitar parts simultaneously. And it was sort of like a call and response, like left, right mm. little guitar phrase. And, and, uh, I think Chris, uh, filmed it and was like, you know, panning back and forth as each of us were doing the, the little stabs, the guitar licks, and uh, it's it's so cool. I mean, yeah, if you told me in like uh, you know high school, well, you're gonna play guitar live alongside Jason on the Emmett Rhodes record, I'd be like, fuck, that's that's awesome. And you know what? I I, I it's been a long time since high school, and I still think it's awesome. <laughs> so how how was Emmett? Because after talking to Chris, um, you know, I, he seems a very um, Oh, what's the word? Sort of um, curmudgeonly moody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, did did I don't was, have was, a, I was don't he have a... okay? Go ahead, go ahead. Oh no, no. Was was he like that with sort of you know everyone on the album? Was it kind of like an Axl Rose kind of uh, 
no, I wouldn't liken it to somebody like that. I don't really have a problem with that kind of personality type. I think it comes with the territory. If you've been through what Emmett's been through, it's yeah. to be expected. And I, and I appreciate, um, this, like the transparency and down to earthness of it. If he, if like, I don't know, he, he wasn't, he definitely he was on great behavior when we had the whole band. It was live tracking. He was respectful and complimentary. But you know, it's like if he if you gotta you gotta have a thick skin and be able to take a joke if somebody you know makes fun of a of a guitar lick or a bass part or a lyric or something. You gotta be able to just I don't know yeah kind of just take it like a man and 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 it's sort of like yeah it's Emmett Rhodes. He's a great artist. He's had a a, a, a tough couple of hard knocks in his life and we're all sort of uh lucky and appreciative and stoked to be there playing for him and with him so i was certainly not like um you know crying crying my on the drive home with my tail between my legs go and it was so mean or something no way it's like he you know he's the boss and they're his songs and he has an edge to him but if anything i found his edge like extremely humorous mm-hmm. Cool. I, I, I'm hoping, uh, like, I, I know, I don't know if Emmett has any immediate plans, but if he is playing any more gigs, uh, you know, um, I'm hoping that I can be in LA to uh, to see it. Um, well, you know, Chris would have any information there is to have on that. It never came to fruition, and it was disappointing. Yeah, for, he was uh, he was ill, wasn't he, on the night of the? You know. Um, I, I don't. We don't have to go into it. It's, you know, no, he hadn't performed live in a really long time. Yeah, and he he um, he didn't feel up to it vocally, and in my opinion, you know, other pressures psychologically, emotionally, maybe things beyond the physical voice. That's that's just my my personal two cents. But Chris really, really did the best he could and the record came out beautifully the reviews have been great the fans of emmett uh found out about it it got in the right hands and we went to do this event at the grammy museum um which was really meant to be a q a and sort of a uh an overview of who emmett is and what he had done and how the new record came about so it was really the night was all about um how chris and emmett met and the the narrative of Chris um, pulling Emmett uh, back into the studio and putting a band together around him and going through his material and and challenging him and motivating him to write and perform and sing and record. And I know that um, Emmett has a lot of gratitude for Chris, and it was a very mutually, uh, you know, the the. Um, the the admiration went both ways because for Chris as a as a fan um, and as a great um, up and coming producer it was a, a huge hugely rewarding for him and I think for Emmett to have such a fan and a friend and a quality producer in Chris was hugely rewarding for Emmett so the whole night was kind of a celebration of Emmett's life and his music and the story of Chris. Uh, um, sort of picking picking him up and dusting him off and making him make a new record and in the end we played a few songs and and emma just i don't know for whatever reasons physical mental or a combination of both he wasn't up for it 
and Chris sang the songs, and we all sang harmonies. And then Chris went directly to the airport to fly out to open for the Who the next day <laughs> in a gigantic arena. So um, it was what it was. You yeah. know, if Emma had sang, that would have been awesome. If we had done a couple of festivals or at least some local gigs in L.A., that would have been awesome. It's not been ruled out, but um, we sort of had to uh, – you know, let let that go for the time being because you, you can't put on Emmett Rhodes concert if Emmett Rhodes doesn't want to sing. So uh, that's totally understandable. So I mean, with with Chris, um, how did you first meet? I mean, was it kind of was there a connection? Like, sort of, did you realize how determined he was immediately and how passionate he was? And you know how you know. Yeah. I, I mean, it's shown in the way that he was able to get the Emmett project um, up and running and, you know, basically almost do the impossible um, when you, yep. when you hear the story that he told. Um, did you, uh, Chris moved from Florida to LA. So were you aware of him from um, his previous bands or? Uh, it's funny now that I think about it. Um, I met him through the same guy I met blue through John Fields. Okay. Um, so, around the same time actually um yeah working with john uh was a big uh just turning point because the band that i was in were together since high school and it was very very insular yeah. uh we we didn't have you know these days everything's featuring and guesting and collaborating and this person's on that record and that person on this record but in our in our time of our band, which is sort of like, well, these are the dudes in the band, and and um, honestly, the schedule we kept in those days of the amount of gigs we were playing year round, there wasn't a whole lot of time to um, collaborate with others or et cetera. So um, John had started working with us, and he had introduced me to Blue, who we were very fast friends. We had become close. Uh, right off the bat and then yep Chris's band Price which featured two of his brothers uh, were new to LA having moved from Miami and they were kind of going through the ringer at Geffen which is the label that, that Rooney was on um, they they had a really really exhaustive process of trying every fucking producer in town and being asked to write and write and write more. Um, so, um, it was kind of, a, I, it was a mixed time for Chris. I think it was bittersweet because he's out here in LA mingling with all sorts of new musicians and new friends. He's signed to Geffen. He's in a band with his brothers. The label's paying for a house for them to live in together. And, and, uh, nobody has a day job and they're just kind of, young and running around having fun but on the other hand the label saying can you write another song can you write five more songs can you try this producer can you try that producer maybe you need to do half with this guy and half with that guy or maybe okay now you have the record but you don't have a single or now you have the single but it needs to be remixed etc hmm. they just kept fucking going on and on and at the same time um that i was getting to know chris and hearing those tales from him uh you know my band was uh I was sort of in a place where I was uh, looking for more action as a songwriter and maybe as a vocalist also um, trying to, you know, uh, do for a bit of a growth period and to, to spread wings outside of the band a little bit. 
and Chris and I just fell in writing songs together and we didn't have an aim in terms of a name of a project or a band or a record it was a totally informal songwriting partnership that came about um as naturally as can be it just really came up from hanging out and listening to music which led to playing music which led to writing music it, as simple as that really and we just got off to the races and we wrote so many songs together so fast that it was almost like um a challenge to see if we could keep doing it how if we could keep that clip of writing uh up because we both had a lot to to say at the time i was a little bit stifled trying to um trying to get songs out of myself and he was stifled trying to um kill time while waiting in this in this dreadful holding pattern his label so it was a, a very um, soothing, therapeutic thing for both of us to just get together and write songs. Um, and then after a while, we broached the idea of, of the songs being for a solo record for me to sing, which he encouraged, and we co-produced together, and then we did another one. We did a third one, which we unfortunately never put out. Um, but always, to this day, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of other people. I, I did a little bit of writing with Mike Biola. I'm a huge fan of. I've written uh, a couple of things with Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne, who's obviously no uh, no slouch yeah. in the songwriting department. And I've worked with Blue. I've written tons of stuff with him. There's a, a great singer-songwriter, Kelly Jones, not to be confused with the, the man Kelly Jones from Stereophonics, but woman Kelly Jones uh, of California. And I've written with all these people, and I've written on my own. And but Chris, uh, that feels like my home base main songwriting partner. When it's been a while, and I'm due for some new material, or I have a musical thread, but I don't know what to do lyrically, or I have a lyrical thing, but I don't know what to do musically, or I have a verse but don't have a chorus, or I just feel like I want to get together with Chris and write some songs. I always circle back to him, and we're in one of those phases right now. We just talked today about maybe doing some writing tomorrow. So, um, and then we sort of, as the Rooney thing came to a conclusion and his brother band Price came to a conclusion, we both sort of saw, um, each other through those things. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's that. Here we are. So, um, Rooney, uh, was always with, uh, Geffen, um, uh, no, we did, uh, the last record we put out was, we formed our own, um, label. Oh, um, California Dreamin'. Uh. Yeah, yeah, and that was, um, distributed by, uh, Warner Brothers. So, with, with, um, with Geffen, then, uh, though. They're all the same, by the way. I don't, I'm not, um, I, I, some people, um, are into, um, labels, like, like, like they're into uh, baseball teams or something. Like I, I, for whatever reason, when I looked through liner notes of CDs as a kid, the one thing I didn't give a shit about was what label it's on. <laughs> like, to, like who played it, who wrote it, who sang it, who recorded it, who mixed it, who did the artwork, who, who took the photo. That's what I need to know. What, like, you know, which of the two or three or five remaining. Uh, behemoth corporate conglomerate labels got to put their stamp on the back is probably like 
the least consequential piece of information <laughs> okay. to me. So when people are like, oh, was it Geffen or was it Interscope or was it Warner? It's like, eh, who cares? Uh, okay, but I was going to ask you some questions, but I probably won't ask them. Now. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> if it comes down to, you know, personnel or, or like how yeah. decisions were made or what happened, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm just sort of making a side a okay. tangential comment about like how I'm kind of bad with um, oh, okay keeping keeping t- tabs on what records are on what labels like I don't well yeah. without getting sort of you know I don't, I don't want to um, I don't know if it would get you in trouble or anything with anything that you say but was was it becoming an increasingly stra- strained relationship with Geffen uh, like were more bands other than uh, Price and yourselves like feel like you were being sort of um, Control to be a certain way because you know uh, the previous well, al- the previous albums were success. Did they want more of the same kind of thing, or you know, it's not that black and white. To get to give a little bit of credit to the labels, they're always erring on the side of um, artistic freedom. They want the bands to to do their thing. They just want that thing to sell. Yeah, you know. So um, I think that. We we weren't groomed to be the kind of band that you're going to roll out over three or four or five or seven records and just have each one sell more than the last one and keep the band touring and sustaining itself the way, um, let's say, you know, R.E.M. or somebody had that slow burn where by the time... Uh, you know, these huge REM hits came around in the mid-90s. They had been a band for a decade already. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit front-loaded. We were super young. We had not released anything on an indie level. We were on a major off the bat. And they were just spending a lot of... I mean, when you tally up the producers and the mixers and the artwork and the promotional costs and the tour support, um, you know, tour support meaning like, we didn't have an, enough of a fan base yet to just start headlining straight away. So we're opening for bands and the bands we're opening for have a, only a limited amount of money. They're willing to pay the opening acts. So we, you can't even afford to go be the opening act unless the label chips in. So with the label spending a lot of money and so they don't make it back on the first record, they try on the second record, they don't make it back on the second record. And at some point, you know, they, uh, what do you call it? You cut your losses. And, you know, our second record had a lot of success in Europe, and I think it kind of drove the, the label crazy in the States because they're sort of like, well, how do we have a number one song in Germany, but we can't get on the radio station? Any stations here in the States, we can't even move the needle. So I think they just had sort of tried everything, and that was that. And we had um, come to sort of an organic conclusion with our relationship with them. So I don't getting off of Geffen wasn't that... Um, like dramatic or painful to be honest that wasn't one of the things that sticks out in my memory as being like some massive to do just kind of like they're they don't know what else to do and we're like well great then let's have them not do anything else let's just go somewhere else mm-hmm. do, do, do you feel that during that time um could you feel the sort of um uncertainty within the changes in the music industry like it seems to be in a, in kind of a more certain place now and it, it feels like it can you know, retrospectively yeah, very, look back and kind of almost predict the future a lot more now than it could 10 years ago. Um, yeah, it's very awkward to be straddling 
the pivot point of history where we started out in the era of people buy records and now all of a sudden we're in the era of people who don't buy records. It'd be easier now. Like if you're, if you, if I was like 18, the notion of selling a million records would be such a blown out, unrealistic thing that you wouldn't even, it wouldn't even really be in your dreams. Yeah. So you're not jaded about it. That's why I love producing now because if someone's going to pay me to make their record for them, it's like, I'm so like giddy and enthusiastic. I'm so unjaded about that. It's like, really, you want me to, you want me, it's like helping someone deliver their baby. It's like, you want me to, to, to produce your songs that are going to go out into the world. And, and you want to give me money for that? Holy <laughs> shit. You know, I'm so uh, grateful for it um, because it's, it's new to me. So I'm not like bemoaning like, oh man, the rates for a producer used to be such and such per song. And now it's only this per song. It's like, I'm, I'm just happy because it's a newer thing for me. And it just suits um, my uh, lifestyle and, and my age and my desires and needs uh, a lot more now than, than like trying to promote a new band. And I do have a band I'll definitely mention, you know, I have a little group called The Great Indoors, and we haven't released anything yet. I don't even know if the name will stick, because there's a TV show in the States called The Great Indoors. But um, I've been working on this record a long time, and it's a really cool group, and we play live once in a while. And I do care about it, um, and I do think it's quite good and, and worth hearing. Um, it's just a matter of um, we're all... Um, either playing sessions or producing or, you know, I'm, I'm involved in this, uh, a very, very theatrical, uh, Fleetwood Mac tribute show where I play Lindsay Buckingham and we do the <laughs> whole story of Fleetwood it, Mac. And it looks, so, it know, looks so much fun. The Fleetwood Mac thing as well. I'm hoping it that. is, it is. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And, um, I could go into that too, if you want me to, but yeah, that's a lot of fun. And, now I'll be heading out to play guitar for Sparks uh, this summer and fall. Mind, mind blown! Like yeah, um, before I mean I just I, sorry. Oh no no, go for it, go for it. Um, I I just think I feel very um appreciative of the variety, you know, of of um working in music in several different capacities each one being a, a different sort of slice of my overall pie of what I do from year to year. But to, uh, you know, I got to produce an artist named Cullen O'Mori on Sub Pop. Well, that's a label I do care about, and I will brag that I produced uh, something for Sub Pop. Uh, he was in um, the band Smith Westerns, and I just produced his record for Sub Pop. And I have another couple things I'm producing and then my own record and the Fleetwood Mac show and Spark. So to me, that variety of bouncing from thing to thing is a lot more fun and healthy and enjoyable and a, kind of more up to date than um, that year or year and a half cycle of the band that makes the record and then shoots the video and then do, does the the tour that never ends and then does the tour in another country that never ends and then comes back to this country and does more shit until everybody's fucking exhausted and inevitably disappointed that it didn't sell more and earn more and make more. So let's get back into the studio and try again. It's like that is, you got to have a lot of energy for that and you got to have a lot, a big team of 
behind the scenes people like bolstering that shit you know all the all the um agents promoters labels radio people it's a it's a big machine that thing yeah and for me to be able to step in and step out in my own private independent kind of secret little corner of the world that i've carved out here to just go on tour for a couple of weeks and then make a record for a couple of weeks and then have some time off to maybe write my own songs for a couple of weeks. It's pretty, I got to say, it's pretty nice. Yeah, I totally, I, and it's really sort of um, inspiring as well, because I'm, I'm in a sort of a weird position that I'm from Newcastle in the UK, but I kind of uh, feel in my own way more a part of the LA scene than I am sort of locally. Um, and a lot of the musicians that I love and respect um you know, they have had the chart success as well, but they have shown that you can do, like you say, do other things, make a living from it, enjoy it, and just, you know, it's, for me, it's about um, you just using your skills and your talents and your passions to ideally make some kind of a living, because if you enjoy what you're doing, it's it doesn't really feel like work, and I know that's a bit of a bit of a cliche, but you know. Just... I mean, let's go back to uh, to uh, old Blue, for example. Yeah. He's like the king of side projects. Yeah. There, there almost is no main project. This you know, yeah. he's producing, he's writing, he's mixing, he's doing his own Blue record. He's in a, a, another band, and then he's in another band, and he's developing a TV thing, then he's scoring for a movie here, and it's just sort of like. Um, I, I, you know, I, I uh, admire that variety, and stri have been striving for that myself, and have now sort of in a, having a little moment here where I'm juggling a few things, and nothing has collided terribly yet. Um, I do have to get a substitute for my role in the Fleetwood show for a few gigs, but other than that, I've been able to uh, bounce from project to project, and it's cool because. You know, when a record that you produce for someone's done, it's sort of like it goes out into the world. It's like sending a kid off to college or something. Now it's on the artist to go promote it and all that. Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, um, like like I say though, it's really motivating because you know you are doing what you want whilst also making music that you love, and it almost becomes secondary. I, I would I would think that you know obviously you know it may not sell a million copies but you are making music that you love to for people that love that kind of music. Um, in yeah, none of them. I mean, I haven't taken on any gigs yet where I thought the songs were shit. You know. Oh yeah. Oh well. I, I love Sparks. I love Fleetwood Mac. I I love what I'm doing. I love the records I produce for other people. So I'm yeah. been really really that to me is the luckiest part where I feel like. I haven't like been stuck in some like cheese ball gig yet where I like had to do it because it, it was too good of an offer to turn down, but it's really not my thing. Like, I, you know, I went to uh, the singer Russell from Sparks House the other night, and um, he played he played the whole new record that they just um, finished that we're going to be learning for the road. And yeah, it. I mean, obviously. It's them. It's the two of them. They've been at it since 1968, and I'm the new guy who's just been hired to play some guitar. But they, so it's in no way democratic. I work for them, but they make it feel band-like. You know, there's not like some layer of 
of management between us. They're very interested in what songs we think they should do. Um, or, uh, oh, have you guys ever been to that festival? Is it good? You know, or where the LA show, should we do this venue or that venue? They're, are they um, they're super interested in, uh, in the opinions of the guys playing with them around the room. So, um, that's, that just makes it even more enjoyable to go do that as if it wasn't going to be enjoyable enough just to play <laughs> that stuff with those guys, you know? Do you have a special stage costume planned? Uh, there is a, there is an <laughs> outfit they want for us. I haven't like mine hasn't been issued to me yet. We're still ways off, but uh-huh. yeah, I think they want they want everybody to match. It's not like um, <laughs> you know we're not wearing capes or something. I don't think it's um, that theatrical, but yeah, it's a, a, a uniform. Mm. Well, I, as well, I, I um, when you say that you haven't done anything um, shitty yet in terms of the stuff that you've been commissioned to do or whatever. I'll take that as a compliment since you played guitar for my album. Um, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that was good. I, I, um, honestly, the, the, um, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, you know, I, I would tell Chris, I would tell Linus of Hollywood, like sort of, um, anyone who's played guitar on any of my songs, the stuff on let me sleep is just perfect. Um, and I'm still blown away by it and I still love <laughs> showing people that track in particular um i should i should revisit it it's tough not having uh you know somebody in the room to to guide it along you know Mm -hmm. so you kind of just have to go very instinctual and just you know tear it up and see and hope hope uh hope it's it's uh, it passes muster. Totally, I, I do remember you telling me because I wanted you to sing it, and uh, you said it was too weird. So <laughs> I'll kind of take, <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. The, the guy, well, I don't know if I meant I don't know if I meant the song was too weird or if or if well you me you had to singing go, it for you it was, uh, it was too weird. I don't know. Well, you, you had to go from my sh- very shitty vocal demo, but at the same time, um, it was within my range, so I technically could have sang it. The song that Chris did for me chris price um the vocal yeah, the, the vocal demo that i had to send him was just horrendous i would not show it to anyone because i have a, just a really falsetto nasally kind of voice in that sort of higher range and he he i'm, I'm proud of i would have been proud of the song anyway but he turned my just he turned uh chicken shit into chicken salad basically uh, and, yeah um, i've heard but he did he was really proud of it too he, he played it for me i think before he sent it to you it was awesome but, you know, I have a very, very high tenor voice, full, non-falsetto, like I sort of... I've, I've seen you uh, when you... Um, it was one of Chris Price's uh, YouTube videos. It was uh, for Don't Forget when you did the harmonies on the chorus. And um, those were some ridiculous uh, notes that you hit. Well, well, you know, it's sort of like um, I don't have... Uh, I don't have a, a lower range, so it's it's kind of like... If I'm asked to sing something for for you or anybody, unless it's like that's where my voice it doesn't like start to really get exciting or sound like much of anything until I'm up in that register, which is something I really only like keyed in on in the last few years because I was always more of a guitar player who sang harmony here and there, and then when I started singing lead, I just sort of forced myself to do it, but it wasn't necessarily like. Um, excelling or thriving as a lead voice yet and what i came around to more recently was just like these really high notes that people 
seem to think are like unusually high. I just have to accept that's where my range lives and things that are easier for some people on the lower end are, are terribly low for me and I don't have any power or control or much like tone or character down in the middle or lower register. So now I'm just avoiding it. And in my writing, I'm, I'm just keep fucking sliding that capo up until I find the highest possible key <laughs> I can sing the song in. And then that's the key I recorded in because uh, that's just sort of what's worked yeah. for me recently is pushing it. And, you know, when you're playing at some fucking local club and with whatever sound guy and whatever sound system, that is what I found cuts through the guitars mm -hmm. is being up in that range for me. If I'm singing something like down here, like in my speaking voice right now, it's like, what's the point? You're not even gonna, it sounds like mud. It's nothing. Um <laughs> Well, see, so. we, we've um, we'll, we'll get off it, but with the uh, the track that you play guitar on, um, realistically, now thinking about it, your voice may not have worked on that track uh, because it's a very it is a very low melody. And um, my producer, who uh, produced everything for me until that point, uh, Vim Audek, he's uh, a guy from uh, the Hague. He actually passed away last September, um, so it, it it makes that song in particular even more special. And I know that he was proud. Wow. Of, uh, performing on the track with you as well it, it's it's just a crazy thing that like so many people have played on these tracks and have never met each other sort of thing but he was he was incredibly proud of it um and yeah he Sorry, heard that, yeah i, I can't i can't imagine anyone one else um uh, sort of singing that track i mean we do perform it live and um yeah but the studio version i you know um vim did an amazing job on it and um yeah i'm, I'm really glad that you're proud of it as well because you know it's just something I'm particularly, you know, uh, connected to, I guess, because, you know, it was a bit of a sad time when uh, Vim passed away. I, d I don't know what I'm going to do for the next album with uh, Vim not being around. Um, but, yeah, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we uh, when we come to it. But um, the... With um, Rooney, and even with Taylor Lock and the Ruffs, did you um, still consider yourself more a guitarist than... Uh, a singer at that point. I know you were singing on the album, um, but yeah, definitely. Um, it was tough because it was Chris backing me. He was a much more accomplished singer than I was at that point. Mm -hmm. um, it just takes a long time to to get something second nature. Like you know, the guitar stuff for me was just in the long term muscle memory. It was second yeah. nature, and um, did, did having your it, name like Taylor Lock and the Ruffs was the idea that because you have a name and you know because of Rooney and everything that would have been more um, commercial yeah, and I sought after, I guess. Because Logics, well, I mean, seemed really suited, and they released uh, Roger Manning's uh, stuff as well. So were they just really eager to sort of get involved, no, sort of thing? No, no Logics only did my my fully solo album um they didn't put out the rough oh, albums okay no, the the rough yeah I, yeah the idea of the, the the having my name incorporated in the band name yeah it was twofold i think one was definitely like um to make it known to people who already were familiar or fans mm -hmm. um that it was my group um and then also it was just kind of my first time out 
singing songs that I had had a hand in writing, and um, it was it, it was just it felt kind of personal. It felt somewhat you know very um, uh, first person like the narrator in the songs like is me. I'm not it's not a story or a character. You know they're all kind of fairly autobiographical. So that was the idea there. And then um, the solo. Um, also, we had a lot of members come and go. Chris was the only other uh, permanent fixture, so it would have been funny to have a band name. And then the membership is changing all the time. It's like, well, and who's the band? Mm-hmm. So if it's a guy's name and a band, it's a little more flexible. You could sort of buy it and accept it if the band members change, as long as the, the guy whose name is on the thing is there. Not, um, and then my solo album, Time Stand Still, on Low Jinx Records, that was um, uh, something I had done where I'd written some songs with other another songwriting partner, Kelly Jones, and circled back to Chris at the end and wrote a couple things with him. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was a really, really slow burn because I was running my studio here, renting it to other people, playing on sessions for other people, recording other people, and then once in a while I'd have a song, and we'd work on it. Um, You should um, be made aware of a gentleman named Kyle Fredrickson, who is the uh, secret right-hand man of all of the L.A. people that you've mentioned. I've definitely definitely heard the name. It's... um... You just, yeah, he, you just he, become aware of names. <laughs> well, he's a uh, he wears a lot of hats. He's mm-hmm. a very very good guitar player, and he plays lap steel and pedal steel and banjo and mandolin and keyboards and piano, mellotron, bass, and he's a well trained engineer. He's got a lot more technical chops than than kind of the rest of us, mm-hmm. um, and so he he and I. Uh, co-produced my solo record together and he and I have done a lot some film and TV music together and on anything that I'm hired to produce so I use him as an engineer and multi-instrumentalist and then the great indoors the project I'd mentioned is is he and I together um, and we record that stuff together and arrange it together and mix it and he plays uh, a ton of guitar bass and keyboards on that stuff um so yeah i mean chris is kind of a go-to writing partner for me and then and then kyle's the go-to recording and performing partner and i'm uh you know i'm glad to have both those guys and a bunch of the other guys around here um in in the in the stable in the community i hope everyone's enjoying my interview with taylor lock I'll be back in a jiffy. Meet Barry. He wanted to get a website for his removal business. He searched online, met a number of web companies, ended up with too many options to take on board. Then he hired a web company. The company built a website, but there were many corrections. The company did not understand Barry's business. Barry then found Planet John. His website was designed and built on one week's time. The site comes with free maintenance and works on laptops and smartphones. We even told the World Wide Web about Barry's business at no extra cost. What are you waiting for? Contact us, www.pltjohn.com. And now, back to the show. So with the 
with the uh, two albums and um, even with the stuff that you co-wrote for um, Homesick, uh, Chris's uh, debut album, um, right. was all of that stuff just written at the time and it was kind of like deciding which stuff goes on which album sort of thing or was it really a, a bit of a slow burn in terms of the writing um, thing? Because the, the, did both albums come out in the same year, Granny Grape and Marathon? Yeah, it came out really back to back when we went to mix the first one at Ducky Carlisle's in Boston. Yes. We we wrote like a handful of songs. We were writing every day while we were waiting for him to to play us mixes. Mm-hmm. So we came back from mixing the first record with like half of the second record already written. <laughs> and and uh yeah, I guess for me it was like making up for lost time because I hadn't had a chance to record my own material or my own voice. So yeah, we did that right away. Uh, the songs that went on Chris's album, yeah, probably I wouldn't. I don't remember exactly. I, he, he, Chris would probably like the things that we co-wrote that are on his first solo album were written um, probably after the second Ruffs album. And then they didn't end up going on our third album, which has never been made available, but should at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he he uh, he used them for his record, um, which was you know flattering, and, and I'm glad that they came out in some capacity. And he and he sings them great. Mm-hmm. Well, we've um, we've the the Ruffs um, albums. It it kind of with a lot of uh, like sort of stuff that comes out of LA that I personally love uh, the sort of you know the Roger Manning Jason Faulkner stuff um, and your stuff and uh, Fernando stuff etc. It it's kind of fine to wear your influences on your sleeve sort of thing um, because you know I, I, is it sort of generally and like an accepted thing that you are going to get compared to things. You know, you know, no one likes mm. to be labeled as such, but is it kind of no. more, is it more of a badge of honor when people are like, you know, like uh, don't forget the guitar solo is very kind of George Harrison to me, and obviously, uh, you know, Badfinger, I, I I love that song. That's my favorite Ruffs yeah. uh, uh, song. Um, huh. Lyrically, uh, it's so emotional and just um, it it just it kind of gets me every time the bad because knowing what they went through as well. Yeah, just, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously that one's very literal and and on the nose about it to be honest i hate to um rain on that parade but i think that the biggest change from where i'm at now to where i was five or seven years ago with the rough stuff is i think that producing other artists has just broadened my horizons a lot and Mm. those artists like george harrison or badfinger will always sort of be ground zero for me, very near and dear to my heart, jellyfish as well. But I think that um, the fatal flaw of that stuff was being too referential and too kind of um, retro and and too on the nose. And I, and I, and I think that um, music and entertainment and art, et cetera, is meant to be moving forward and combining things in new ways and i i think that the next thing you'll hear from me 
whatever it's called and whenever it comes will hopefully break a little bit of of new ground sound wise where some of those more classic influences are um blended with other things i think you have to have unexpected things and i think that chris has gotten to that place too you know his new record is 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 tremendous i can't stop listening to it it's great and i think it's also you know it's a little bit more contemporary or modern or or of of the moment or or pointing towards the future and i think that um my disappointment and my ultimate decision to not continue doing the roughs is that the community is, is it's too small for it. You know, the, the guys who, um, you know, I don't want to insult that thing because I care about it and I, and I'm part of it and I enjoy music very much, but I think that we have to find ways to make it sound like today's music and tomorrow's music and and by doing that we're going to bring more people to the party we're going to bring younger people to the party and we're going to keep the ball rolling and and keep keep things uh relevant and engaged and and forward moving and it doesn't mean that you deny your influences or you hide them it just means um if you're going to do something with a George Harrison guitar sound, maybe do it with like a drum machine. And then all of a sudden that's kind of new, you know, you didn't invent the drum machine and you didn't invent the George Harrison solo, but maybe putting the two things together has freshness to it. Or like maybe you're going to do something that's kind of fifties, but kind of nineties. I don't know. That's kind of, these are kind of crass things I'm putting together just for example it's a little bit crude of 50s 90s I don't know what that would be but maybe it's interesting whatever yeah. that is maybe it sounds like Elvis Presley meets fucking Nirvana <laughs> I don't know oh like, dude that, that, do you know of a band called Elvana no you need is, to that, check, is that what that is you need to check them out it's um yeah it's uh Elvis songs done in the style of Nirvana with the guy okay well like the, okay so, the, so, so there you have it there you have it let's take that out of of the realm of of novelty joke band and let's instead of playing Elvis songs like Nirvana how about write new songs that are kind of Elvisy but kind of Nirvana again it's a crude mashup that I'm sort of just <laughs> using to illustrate hmm. my point but I think that um, I don't know. It's easier for me producing other people. I have an easier time figuring out how to tilt something uh, left, right, center, or or dark or bright or whatever. Doing your own music is a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. So you got to rely on other people. You know, my fiance Dakota. She she co-produces with Kyle and I on the Great Endorse stuff, and she doesn't. Um, she hasn't had experience doing that in the past, and she doesn't play. Um, guitar or, or drums or keyboard or anything, but she can make very objective, broad comments um, that really challenge what we're doing and help to just make it to make it a little bit hipper, you know, so that things have an edge. So in some, in some, I would like in some small way to help contribute to a sound that, that maybe you haven't heard before. Um, as opposed to just like, oh, they really nailed that bad finger yeah. thing. Because first of all, bad finger already nailed the bad finger thing. You're not going to do it better than them. And second of all, 
the audience for that kind of thing is just so niche that that and that's okay for some people if you just want to say like you know what that i that's my um my little uh area and that and i have some fans there and i'm fans of them and they're fans of mine but you know i'd like to be able to play ball and like get a song uh on a television show or have a promoter uh bring me to um you know japan or spain or something to perform and it requires challenging yourself um to maybe push the ball forward a little bit and achieve something that's a little bit fresher it's it's very safe and easy to just um throw up your favorite cheap trick song and try to get that snare sound and get that guitar sound and and then you know away we go i could do it all i could do it all day long you know it's harder to um hybrid two or three things and come out the other end of that having um synthesized something that's you know wasn't uh wasn't around prior to you putting in the effort to doing that you know so would you a friend of mine asked me the other day a friend of mine said how do you make rock music new and it's like well first of all i don't know but second of all i said you know how you by you try that's how you have to try because if you just say let's um, do it uh, a Tom Petty thing, well, I don't know. There are some bands who are doing that and succeeding at it, but I think that's the exception to the rule. I think you'd be better served trying to take your Tom Petty thing and and blend it with something that wouldn't seem like it necessarily goes with a Tom Petty thing at all and see what happens. Yeah. So did did you feel at the time that uh, the Ruffs was consciously kind of doing that? I mean, was it the was it was the attempt to try and sort of get signed to a big label or something? No, 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 no. It was very much independent thing on the side because I was still mm-hmm. signed. So um, did, did it feel like you could um, because you were kind of breaking loose and kind of doing your own thing a bit more? Um, did it? And I mean this in the the most positive way possible. It gave you a chance to kind of be self indulgent and um, do things. Yeah, that that's your effect. Like yeah, some, something like Weekend Warrior and stuff like that, with the the production yeah, on the vocals and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think I was so consumed and excited with the idea that I was going to be the singer singing songs that I co wrote. Yeah that um i think i just production wise it's it's almost like no production it was just done in a extremely direct extremely dry fashion um and because i just i was it was all about just putting my my material my material out there oh i got some songs together and i'm gonna sing them and so when chris and i went in to record what we had written um we wanted to do them really, really fast mm. and really just to the point, really to the point. Like not a lot of effects, not a lot of overdubs, couple of guitars, bass, drums, dry vocal. And I was so, um, I mean, I, what you're saying, why did the production come out that way? Because I was 24 years old and I didn't have the perspective I have right now. I was just fucking thrilled that, that uh, to hear my voice come out of the speaker singing lyrics uh, and melodies that, that I that I 
was proud of and that I had helped construct. Yeah. So if I could do it again, and maybe someday we will, if I were to re-record some of those songs, I definitely think they could be turned on their asses a little bit and fucked up a little bit and given a more left of center approach um, that, you know, I, I like, I like the songs that we wrote and I'm proud of them. Um, but I've learned so much more over the past few years in, you know, production is the delivery system and no matter how good your song is, someone might not want to stick around for that chorus or even that verse. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't kick off with something that's kind of sonically sets a stage and paints a picture of, of some place they've never been to or some place they, they want to Mm -hmm. go to. Um, and that goes both ways. There's tons of songs I hear these days that are like all vibe and attitude and have every trick and bell and whistle and sound like you're in some like very interesting futuristic environment and the song just fucking never goes anywhere and you don't need to really hear it again. You're not like, play that play that again on repeat, I gotta hear that again. You're like, yeah, that's fine and now it's over and move on to something else. Um, ultimately... You want to have both. You want to have songs that um, that compositionally are going to hold up over time, and that and and that's um, the songwriter in you, and then the producer in you wants to um, present the song in a way that's like, "Whoa, what is this? This is interesting," you know. And these days, more than ever, the the divisions between genres are kind of those walls are coming down. There's indie bands that sound so slick now and there's pop bands that 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 sound that have um you know uh much edgier components in them so i think if if you can um i don't know i was having this conversation the other day with a friend about um about how we classify things like how we decide what genre we're going to stick something in almost seems to me that all the really well-known subgenres of rock music, whether it's punk or grunge, etc., these were labels that were adhered to the these things sort of after the fact. Yeah, and I think that if you're going to, if a band were to come to me and say, "We want to start a punk band," or "We want to start a power pop band," or "We want to start a classic rock band," or a grunge band, I would think that'd be very dangerous and very like. Um, uh, wrong-minded because what you want to do is start a band that's a synthesis of these different things you've enjoyed and turn into something new and then someone will give that a name someone will come up with something to call it mm. but when you're going to try and just do something that's already been done like, we're going to be a punk band it's like yeah all right it's it's 2017 what are you going to accomplish being just a straight up 100 percent fully pledged fledged punk band now, why don't you take the punk attitude or the punk spirit um, and then bring in something else with it, you know, or else it's um, it's like being a historical preservationist. It's like you're like Amish or something. <laughs> if you want to just ignore that anything has happened since 1977. Um, I don't it's and, and that's your prerogative. Yeah. If somebody if somebody's just sort of like, that's my thing. I don't like any music after that time period, and I and I wish I was born for that time period. Then go ahead, but it's that's a very um, fringe, almost like fetish, like uh, um, 
road to go down. I think, especially if your main aim, I mean, obviously things are different now, but if your main aim is to, say, be signed by a major label, um, it's in a lot of cases from bands that I see locally, bands are trying to sort of almost emulate stuff that is already sort of out there and commercially successful right. and it, you're kind of chasing it and you know I, I kind of believe in the phrase that a stop clock is right twice a day but it just means that your your time may not come around until you know say 10 years time or something like that and you yeah that's true that's very true that is the other side of the argument and i don't i don't think it's completely wrong if you just do what you do i don't i I mean i love the band sloan from canada and they're good friends of mine and one of their songs even has a lyric 10 years ahead of our time or about one year behind (laughs) um which is a great lyric and totally fitting for their their band's existence and style and yeah there's always a resurgence a, a reactivation a re uh you know a reunion re this re that it, you know that always happens it comes around but look we we talked about jellyfish um who were wore their influences on their sleeves to an extent but they they um put that shit together in a way that when i hear you know, what year is uh, the first belly button? 1989, 90? 90, yeah. Yeah, that record sounds like 1990, and it also sounds like today, um, even though it's borrowing from the 60s and 70s. They weren't doing it in a way where it's like, um, you know, uh, like filtering a, a photo to make it look like it was taken in, in in those days it's not a period piece yeah it it has elements of pastiche and homage and it's um definitely like okay obviously they like queen and the beach boys and the beatles and harry nilsson and marshall crenshaw and xtc it goes without saying it is plainly uh, on display in the records but we wouldn't be talking about them today if it didn't also sound like a very fresh blend of those things that was um, of its time. So yeah, it sounds sixties and seventies, but it also sounds nineties and it sounds now it works outside of time because it's a blend. And when, when, when you hear the stories of them working with Jack Joseph Puig and, and, and marathon mixing sessions that went on for days and days and renting 20 of the same amplifier to see which one uh, recorded the best. Like they're not doing that because they, they're trying to go backwards. Hmm. They're doing that to go forwards, you know? And that's why we still listen to those records because um, if they were just a straight up uh, band of queen imposters, we would just listen to queen. This is true. I, I mean, the- they say is, but I mean, they said that they made a very conscious effort as well to not have uh, instrumentation that would sound dated on the on the records. It's like sort of lots of uh, acoustic. Um, I don't want to say real yeah. instruments, but like not really well, much in the way of synths and. Um, it's you know that 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 are that conversation now that I'm recording other people's things more often. It's tough to have that conversation because. Y- it, you, as hard as you try it, it, 
it it can't be avoided you know like yeah. there are certain sounds here and there on the jellyfish record where there'll be a reverb on a snare drum or something okay that's 1991 i can spot it you know i could smell i could smell that <laughs> reverb as being an early 90s reverb you know you, it's hard you don't know when you're in the moment so the conversation of should we make it sound like now or make it sound timeless like timelessness and production um you know, it's well. You hit it a couple minutes ago. It's cyclical. It'll be, it'll be a stop clock will be on time twice a day. It's the same as fashion. You know, if you, if uh, you're hanging on to a, a a look and it's really out, and then eventually it'll be back in. Are you behind the times? Or are you ahead of the times? Who knows? Hmm. So, uh, at least at least you got to try though. At least to me, having that conversation: Are we doing something that's going to sound dated, or is it timeless, or is it futuristic? It, at least you're um, in the. At least you're having these important conversations about how to present your music. Um, what I am, have tried to put a, a little distance around is something that is so purely retro that feels like like a like a costume. Hmm. So I, th- I think it's. Um... Uh, I mean, it's it's well trodden ground, and we'll, we'll get off jellyfish. But like, um, it, that was the misunderstood thing about them as well with their presentation, and you know, people just assumed that they were Beach Boys, Queen, sort of. But the influences ran far deeper than that. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, it's it's. I don't know. I mean, you've read the. I'm assuming you've read the book as well, and you know, just yeah. you know, the frustration that came from being misunderstood and you know you know a, a word that kind of got connected with them a lot really unfairly and wrongly you know psychedelic which they weren't psychedelic at all um you know uh, uh, yeah a lot a lot has been said about their visual image being at odds maybe with their musical message but uh you know that that was kind of like deliberately out of step with the fashion of the times, which was bold and interesting. And, and, you know, time compresses as it goes on. So I don't look at YouTube videos of jellyfish and go, Oh God, that must've been so uncool during grunge. (laughs) Yeah. But I suppose if you were seeing them back then, you would have been thrown for a loop. This is true. I, I, but I, I, as a fan, cause I discovered jellyfish has led to me discovering everyone that's like as much as their music it's what they have introduced me to uh that has been just as uh important and as uh, relevant you know i i know you through jellyfish in a sort of roundabout mm-hmm. way and you know chris price and uh fernando podomo and kate brennan and all these kind of uh, names but also all the classic bands like uh badfinger and uh, you know even elo you know i, I didn't really delve into them too much because again I, I, I shouldn't really use it as an excuse, but I am my age and I'm from where I'm from. <laughs> it's just like that music isn't necessarily, you know, first uh, forward. No, it's fantastic. I mean, it's fantastic to, I mean, when when an influence, when you, when you pick up on where maybe a band got an idea from and you can trace that thread back uh, through time and... Um, being having reverence for great classic artists who've come before while also having a healthy irreverence and trying to throw out the rule book that those are that's the the line that you 
to to straddle, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like all roads do lead back to. Uh, I mean, look, we're talking about something. It's not like um, uh, the opera or ballet or something that has hundreds, if not thousands, of, of years of history behind it. We're talking about a form that that doesn't go back all that far. So eventually, we're going to get back to talking about. Uh, you know, the Beatles and the Beatles influences, you know, Chuck Berry, uh, etc. Um, so it's, it's great to know the lineage and the history and to be a student and a collector and, and a miner of, of these things. And then what can you add to the conversation? And, and okay, so you said ELO, perfect example. Jeff Lynn worshipped the Beatles, worshipped mm. early rock and roll, but then he also was really into classical music. Yeah. And he was also really into studio experimentation and like modern like sound design, basically. And so that's why um, people love ELO because it's not just a Beatles rehash, or else you wouldn't bother. You would just listen to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so, I, I I totally agree. I mean, I, this is gonna. I, I told Roger this, and it's kind of weird to tell Roger or any hero of yours, something like this, and not come across like a crazy person. But I've been told I have the biggest jellyfish collection in the world. Um, <laughs> which is, um, I, it's, I mean, it, it's probably, it's probably true. I mean, I've got like, I think 14 different pressings of just new mistake. Um, you know, it, that it's that wow. level of just batshit crazy. You know, um, when Omnivore released all that stuff, I bought all the, you know, the... What? I, I got to listen to your uh, talk with Roger. What episode number is that? It, ooh, I'll, I will give you a link. It was, it was with Imperial Drag. Um, I'll be, okay. I will be chatting with Roger at some point, uh, hopefully to talk about the new album. Um, it's, it, it just, I, 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 from my point of view, I just, it's it just an insane thing. And it's partly me pushing my luck a little bit and just being a little bit shameless. But like, you know, I never thought I'd get the chance to, just message Roger Manning and be like, "Hey, can you, you know, sing <laughs> a song on my album?" And oh, you yeah. know, talk to you. And you know, I, I, when I asked you to play guitar for me, I never thought you'd say yes in a million years. Um, and you know, I'm really, you know, I, it's just because you are. I, I, I'm going to embarrass you now, but like you and sort of uh, guys like you are kind of like next level in terms of professionalism and sort of you've done that and you've been there sort of thing and just you know I, I, it speaks to your open-mindedness and how um just passionate about making good music you are um i don't know where i was going with any of that to be fair but um yeah thank you well thank you no i, I hey it's very flattering i appreciate it and it's uh um we're all fans that's that's you know that's where it starts mm-hmm. and Sometimes I don't know. My fiance catches me being ultra fanboy, but it's like I'm so glad I didn't lose that because then you become jaded. Like just knowing that, like, okay, what was the first thing when we picked up on this call before you started recording? I was like going fucking crazy that Liam Gallagher's first solo gig is on right now. Yeah, and like I'm happy I feel that way because what's the alternative to be like, oh fuck it, who gives a shit? But it's like, no man, I want to know what was on the set list. I want to hear if his voice is in good shape. I want to see what he's wearing yeah. and who's in the backing band and um, when's he coming to L.A. You know, and and are, are there good going to be good songs in the solo record? Because I'm a fan, I care. So 
you know, XM satellite radio just started an all Beatles station. I'm excited. I, you know, <laughs> I'm into it. So, um, do, do you feel that there could have been a point where you could have become jaded because everything happened when you were so young and, um, it was all well, sort of- I, a lot of things on the business are professional and I'm totally jaded by about, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, but you have to just find humor in that. Yeah. Um, and transitioning lately into production work makes me the, the most unjaded because when somebody, it's easy when you've made a few records to be like, okay, what, here I go, another here, time to cut another vocal. I hope I don't fuck this one up. Let's uh, sing, sing the, print out the lyric sheets, sing this shit. And I don't feel like that. That's an exaggeration. I am excited about my own, my own music too. Hmm. But when you have someone else come in, maybe it's their first record they've ever made, or maybe they've made one and now the pressure is really on for their second one. Yeah. Or maybe they've made eight and, and they don't know what to do differently on their ninth. Whatever it is, they have something riding on it. They have songs they've written, and they have something they want to say. And um, the artist-producer relationship is sort of like you're both a, a student and you're both a teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, I've definitely um, been in sessions where somebody was like, "What if it sounded more like this?" And it's such a they'll reference something, an artist or a song so far outside of kind of what I thought it was we were attempting to do here. Yeah. Almost to the point where I don't even understand how it could, where the, where that could possibly be relevant. But then you you try on their glasses for a minute and see it through their lenses. And you're like, Oh yeah, that's really interesting. And you know what? That goes in your bag of tricks for, for the next session, maybe you're going to pull that out sometime. So it's really just like being like a carpenter with a bunch of tools. Um, and, uh, that's what makes it unjaded for me is like, I have my home base of my palette of colors I paint with. And yeah, like bad finger harmonies or George Harrison solo. Like that's, that's the core. That's a, you know, at the core of, the type of music that I know the best, mm. know, understand how to how to copy that or ape that. But it's more interesting when you turn it on its head a little bit. Totally. Well, look, I'll, I'll not keep you too much longer because um, I'm sure that you're doing many busy things at the moment. Um, unless you're not. <laughs> you know, I've, got, I've got about 20 minutes until I'm going to have a, a session with a young artist since my first pre-production session with her and she's written some really really cool songs i shouldn't say the name yet but she's an up-and-coming la artist and it's a little bit like blondie maybe um and uh she's a really good songwriter and we're gonna uh dive into a little batch of three songs and work on the arrangements a bit and then record them in earnest uh, in a couple of weeks so I'm really excited about that, and I've just been listening to her uh, home demos all day and over the past couple of weeks, um, getting, you know, like sort of like what I was just saying, I'm listening to the sounds that she gravitates towards on her demos, and yeah. they're enlightening to me because maybe they're not what I reach for, and then I'm going to show her some of my sounds, which might be outside of what she would normally reach for, and 
and away we go and we um we'll see what happens and like to, there's nothing to be jaded about in that situation because um she's a good singer and she has good songs and she's trusting me to bring that to fruition so it's really exciting to have that challenge before me totally i imagine and you know it was the case for me that people come to you because they are aware of what you have done and what you can do uh so they you know fully trust your uh opinion and experience but at the same time it's not like you're trying to you know i i suppose i suppose but i i view this as a new separate endeavor you know I, I, it was a long time ago that that i was um on a major label and our fans were pretty young and i wasn't like the main creative driving force of the band so i think people um are are coming around to wanting to record with me because of of a more recent reputation of my my studio is kind of a uh, a cool place and i have a nice collection of instruments and i have a method of of working that is enjoyable for people and also people get they respond to you being a fan of theirs it like it it strokes the ego when they find out that i like what they do and want to help or work with them that's a turn on for people. It like makes them feel good about their shit. Mm. Um, so, um, I don't, I'm, I'm not getting, um, artists who are specifically wanting to do, uh, like a classic rock kind of thing, which, um, which I, I, I'm grateful for cause it keeps me on my toes, you know? Mm hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I would before uh, before I do let you go. We must talk about time stand still. It's amazing that we haven't really talked about it too sure. much. Um, yeah, and then I should wrap around and plug my even newer thing, which you, even though it's not officially released, there are great endorsed tracks online. There's a SoundCloud and a YouTube, and and uh, there's like maybe four or five songs. Excellent. Give me uh, give me links, and I will post them all below. The okay. Show. Um, okay. With with time stand still, it. it it feels like your most, um, I guess, cohesive um, piece of work in terms of production, in terms of, um, I don't know, just maybe because it is all you, I guess, but, um, you know, in terms of really discovering what you can do. I mean, like, you say that you didn't really construct harmonies like that until this album. Um, so did you surprise yourself with the sound that you were able to make? And was that kind of the genesis or the basis of the overall feel of the album? And, and I'm throwing loads of questions at you here, but um, where does Time Stand Still um, in your mind uh, belong in terms of when you say that you are creating something new and you're striving to sort of create something that hasn't been heard before, does that sort of fall into that or do you, no, it does have a, a very nostalgic, very yeah, West, exactly. West coast feel to it. It's, it's one of the most like West coast sounding albums I think I've ever heard. Um, right. Well, at least that's authentic to me. It'd be funny if I was, uh, you know, from, uh, I don't know from uh, Edmonton doing a West Coast signing album, but no, it does it does not. It's the opposite of me trying to distance myself from more classic influence. It's sort of the closing chapter. Okay. In in uh, that it's again, it's just it was almost like a um, 
what's it called? Just really getting something off my chest. It's very singer songwriter, and I hadn't tried my hand with anything that folky or acousticy mm-hmm. before, and um, I kind of gave it a go. I was listening to folk music. I was listening to singer songwriters. There was a lot of that around in LA as there's always been and continues to be. It's a fine tradition. It's a tradition that is, um, based on, uh, you know, it's very writerly. It's very song craft oriented. There's nothing to hide behind, um, in that kind of a mix. Um, it's very sparse and very, um, open. The voice is very upfront and I sort of got it out of my system. Um, not to say that I would never make that kind of music again, but um, it was sort of a, a send-off of these sort of just straightforward personal singer-songwriter kind of things. And since I got that off, now I just kind of want to have some fun. I'm more into like listening to like T-Rex or Bowie Glammy or stuff or... Just things that have a little more um, color in the production, and just having fun with with effects and sounds and and recording drums in a in a dirtier, more unusual way, or, or recording the voice in a less conventional way, or doing guitar electric guitars plugged straight in DI instead of through an amp, and kind of having a really, you know, just kind of more odd sounds. Um, now is what I'm into. Time stand still is very to use the most annoying, overused buzzword, but organic. Yeah, uh, it's that. It's a very naturalist kind of thing, and it has the lyrics sort of on display. And that was that, and that's cool. And I I, I stand by it. I think it's a good record, and I like what I did that's with a- it beautiful arrangements and, and at some point Thanks. i'm going to get you to sign the lp um if we ever end up in the same country at the same time um, sure <laughs> there's a couple of songs that i think about like those closing track no dice and like yeah man that's a good one i can sort of pat myself on the back but at the same time now it's it's i'm just off of that kind of thing right now i'm i'm more into like i don't know like impersonating lindsey buckingham has enriched my my um <laughs> my actual original work a lot because he uses the studio so unconventionally. He, he never records a straightforward sound. Every guitar, every voice, every snare drum, every keyboard is some weird ass version of a voice or a guitar or a snare drum. And you don't need to be weird for weird sake. Sometimes that shit is a little bit t- too far yeah. for my taste, but it definitely um, has like opened me up to um, experimenting, and Kyle Fredrickson's really good with that stuff too. It's like, okay, why don't we re- why don't we run the drum mic through a guitar pedal, um, or why don't we record this acoustic guitar in the toilet? You yeah. know, like it's not that either of those things are like fucking earth shattering. Or, 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 you know, but um, I want to take chances and have fun and kind of um, mess things up a little bit now because I've done the ultra crisp, clean thing. I don't know, like my dad always says to me, oh, it was a good, it was a good record you made. It was, um, 
um, a really good, clean mix. You could hear every word. It was a clean mix. And he means it complimentarily, yeah. compliment, you know, in a positive way. And I, and I always take it the opposite. Like, okay, great. So now I know how to do a good, clean mix. Now let's fuck that up. Who cares about a good, clean mix? We've done, been there and done that. Now let's do something, um, you know, unusual or, or different. Uh, well, I can't. I really can't wait to hear what's uh, what's going to come next. Because uh, with a lot of the musicians that I love from LA, that's the one thing that you can almost um, count on that nothing they do is going to sound the same. Um, uh, well, and and we all think that that's what we're doing, but I don't know. It's pro- it probably is close. It probably is more similar than dissimilar. You know what I mean? There's only so many shades of the dial that that I can that I know how to go. So I'm trying, I guess the, the bottom line is I'm trying, um, new things all the time. And in a year I might say, yeah, you know, it wasn't that different than time stand still, or even the roughs or even Rooney or anything. It's kind of more of the same shit, but <laughs> yep. in the moment, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. No, it, it, it really, no. it really isn't from my point of view, it, you know, everything that everyone seems to be doing at the, look, I mean, Chris's album, you know, it doesn't get, much more of a jump from his first album to this album in terms of production in terms of arrangements and stuff like that of course but there's a thread that ties them together and ultimately i think good artists um try on different sounds but Mm -hmm. have their main thing blue is a great example like he's he's worked in every conceivable genre but his whatever his thing is i i think is um pretty noticeable in in um no matter what like uh paintbrush he's painting with it it, it, you can still hear him same with chris i agree that his two solo albums are very different production wise and content wise but um i hear him in both it's not like he um so much (laughs) to try to conceal his identity or something yeah. oh, no, absolutely i mean you know like the queen stuff you know they could they did something like news of the world and you know it's very different to say night at the opera but they still had the harmonies there they still had the guitars like as specific like a very specific style of guitar solo etc you could tell that it was queen but you could tell it was also an artist expanding sort of thing um they're the best hmm. Oh yeah, Queen of the greatest band in the world. I'll, um, Fucking ultimate man. We're, we're gonna the have best. to t- we're gonna have to talk about Queen a hell of a lot at some point. But before before we go, just some questions. Um, were, when you were in Rooney, um, would you have <laughs> were you considered like a, um, I hate to use the words, but were you considered like a heartthrob back then? Um, did you have like crazy fan encounters? Did you have to sign like you know tits and <laughs> all sorts of stuff? Uh, <laughs> Oh, you're getting into the really tasteful. You <laughs> saved the tasteful questions for. You know, the uh, things started skewing more like younger on our second record. We'd open for some young pop acts, and the fans started showing up a little younger and almost more like family oriented. And and um, it was uh, uh, trying in terms of like wanting to feel like really credible or serious yeah you know you're like young and trying to prove how like you're the real deal but you're being reminded that the the people that this music is speaking to are mainly like young kids um were you like were you looking in the mirror every night and you were like curse my good looks 
<laughs> no, no. It was more like, you know, what I, w- what I wished was that we could have taken the young fans on a journey where they grew up as we grew up the way, like, it went yeah. for the Beatles in the 60s, where, like, the White Album is so fucking far from, like, Hard Day's Night, but yeah. their fans were right there with them because they had gone along the journey. So, I don't know. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't the driving force. I wasn't writing the songs or singing the songs or producing the records or directing the music videos or whatever. So my area was, uh, playing the guitar and, uh, I tried to do a good job with that and embody that sort of lead guitar guy role. And that was my thing. And then, um, I've been able to expand that into, um, producing and songwriting and singing and engineering and um, and I still really love playing guitar, playing lead guitar and performing and that's still something I get to do. Um, so I have that, but but uh, so much more as well now. Absolutely. Well, two two very quick questions. Um, did uh, Rooney? I because I, I, at the time um, it was it was the end of cassettes. So are there Rooney cassettes out there? Uh, no, I don't think we ever did a tape. Ah, okay. I don't know. It's just kind of weird how tapes, even though they are terrible quality, have kind of come back into fashion, and it kind of perplexes me that bands want to put stuff out on cassette. But, um, I don't know. It perplexes me, too. (laughs) There's definitely a charm about it, but, uh, there was the the chance, because Kate Brennan can make eight-track, uh, eight-tracks, and, uh, the last album was going to come out on 8-track, but I was like, who the fuck's going to buy that? Like, <laughs> no one's buying the CDs as they are without me starting making 8-tracks. So, um, yeah, kind yeah, of. I mean, the, my car that had a, a tape machine in it, I sold years ago, and I, le- I lease cars now, and they don't have, you know, my last car leased. This car that I'm leasing now and the one before it, neither have had a tape deck, so and I don't have a tape deck in my house or my studio, so it's not a relevant listening format for me. I think it's cute as like an artifact. I think it's kind of fun that people are doing it, but I'm not uh, um, a tape collector, nor am I going to be disappointed if my next release doesn't come out on tape. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. but I've kind of like the vinyl craze too. I'm a little bit like. Um, just neutral about like I love vinyl because of the big artwork and the experience and routine of having to listen to a whole side and then flip it over it's a more engaged more active listening process but also I think if one has a good attention span you could just will yourself to have that kind of listening experience on any format it's um, uh, like for example, I have Apple Music, like everyone, and I listen to MP3s on my phone, like everyone. But I try to make a conscious effort to not just do playlists yeah. and bounce around, but like you know, I'm going, like, okay, I'm going to put on this album today, and I'm going to, it's going to, I'm going to hear three songs while I drive to the gym, and then I'm going to hear seven songs while I get a bit of exercise, and hear three more songs when I drive home, and then I've listened to an album. And I and I get a lot out of that. It, to me, it's a little uh, more enriching than um, just skipping around on a on a playlist. And th- and that's not wrong either. If I entertain people over at the house for a party and make a playlist, mm. um, but there's a, um, it, I, it's anything that promotes like active listening. I think is good for music because the more that we make music a background thing the less the the 
songs being written matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. More yeah. wallpaper. Ah, uh, you're, you're so wise. You're so wise. <laughs> you, you can, you've you've got the wisdom of someone at least twice your age. Um, so Ed, before we go, um, Ed, like I said, I will be posting links to where everyone can buy all of your music and stream it, and you know everything they need to do. Um, how close was Planet Rock uh, with Taylor Luck? Uh, you know, cl- how close was that to really happening? And um, uh, Fuzuko, where where is uh, Fuzuko yeah. now? Is he, is he <laughs> Is he in rehab or is he... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he's been out of rehab a lot. Uh, that show was trying to be a lot of things. and uh, it, it, looks like, it looks like the greatest show in the world. It really does. Uh, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> and we could have used uh, some more focus and some more money and some more support. Yeah. Uh, not every project is going to be an absolute winner, but um, it, we, it was... It, it was a great challenge. It required a lot of energy and care, and um, uh, it, you know, it was cool. Maybe it, maybe, maybe it can be uh, revived, and I can have a, um, a slightly more peripheral role. Somebody else can be more at the center of it. So, uh, uh, did you? Uh, sorry, I know I keep adding questions to you, but did you sort of take a lot of uh, your production skills from your dad because he was a um, he? Uh, did uh, he's TV, fil- he's film a pro- film and TV producer with no musicality. He'll be the first to admit, absolutely no musicality. But yeah, um, I did. I was just talking about this recently with somebody. The idea of p- producer or production to produce something is. You know, there's the artistic side of it, but then there's also like the organizing and handling of personalities and schedules and timing and money and things like that. And a lot of people are like, um, they don't have the aptitude for that kind of thing. And so I produced a record recently um, where there was difficulty with... um, you know, there were just some, there were some issues, but I didn't like, um, go cry in the corner. I just sort of like, well, this comes with the territory. Uh, you know, part of producing is, is delivering a product and that might sound like crass or workman like, but yeah, I definitely think from, from watching my, my dad's career, I sort of realized that, you know, um, breaking a project into phases, of writing and pre-production and and production and post-production and the kind of you know a methodology and a system and just a workflow of 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 um I think it's like knowing what's coming next having a kind of bird's eye view where you can um foresee problems so you can problem solve sort of before they become full-blown problems just having an eye on what's coming next and also, like, um, you know, it could be something major, like, uh, what if um, somebody is, like, not equipped to perform, they're not up to the task, they're either too out of sorts to do it, or we've hired the wrong person and they're not a good enough player, they can't hack it, like, that's a big problem. Yeah. But even a little thing, like, 
okay, we've just finished doing bass, so now we're going to do keyboards. Well, you know, maybe while, if there's a, a vintage synthesizer that takes 10 minutes to warm up, maybe you turn it on while you're doing bass or something so that you're not wait, waiting around for it. It's just kind of like foreseeing the next thing and, um, and uh, you know, time management, personality management, and... I want people not only to like the record they made with me, but to like the experience they had making it. So um, take breaks, tell stories, have fun, um, and just like keep the ball rolling and just keep it fresh, keep the music fresh, keep the uh, environment fresh. And um, I, I think I'm just talking out of my fucking ass now. <laughs> we, have, we have talked a long time, so I'm, I'm going to, uh, we'll call time now. But uh, thank you for uh, giving me your time. You're probably the first guest that has, like, listened to previous interviews and, you know, um, sort of come yeah, on I like as it. a result of that. So, yeah, I, I always say as well, as a podcast host, you know, you, unlike radio, you don't need any real training and you can make it as niche and specific as you like. Um, and, right. and, like, hosting a podcast is great because you get to just talk to your heroes and you know and, and it's not like you're kind of asking anything of them if anything it means they get to promote their stuff on your show um so it's um it's an right. awesome thing i'm so glad that um you're a part of it and uh like thanks man. it's a pleasure we, we we came right down to the wire i have the, the an artist showing up to work with me now and i and i have one minute to check in with my fiance and check Liam Gallagher's set list. So um, I'm going to jump and we'll circle back on email. I'll send you some links, but thanks so much for having me, man. This was a blast. Thank you, man. Reach for the sky, I hope something will break my fall.
Reach for the Sky from the Taylor Lock and the Ruffs album, Grain and Grape, and links below on where to find all of that amazing music uh, are below the show. Thank you to Taylor. Um, it, it, I, I don't know what I was expecting from it, because I, like, I didn't really know him beforehand, and we haven't really had a chance to chat. And, uh, you know, just like every other LA musician that I think I've talked to, just personable, really nice, goes out of his way to, you know, to help and just yeah I'm, I'm lucky to be connected to such wonderful people uh, so yeah coming up on Pablo's Poppin podcast um, finally the uh, the Deadbeat interview now Deadbeat are an alt rock band uh, with singer Chloe Sturmer who is Andy Sturmer's daughter uh, which is you know like that isn't amazing as it is she's a wonderful wonderful young lady and uh, we got to talk for the third time because um, the first time after the interview, she replaced some band members. Second time, I lost the recording, which was just idiotic. And then the third time, we've done it. And it, I actually think it was the best interview out of the three. Um, we don't really talk about her dad. And uh, I think she kind of appreciated that. Because I said, look, I want it to be about you. And we're going to hang out in LA as well, which is really cool. And, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, of course we've chatted about her dad. And, uh, you know... Uh, outside of the podcast realms and I got to ask all my nerdy questions and stuff like that and you know he's happy and he's creatively fulfilled and uh you know he I, th I think it'll be fine to tell you that he's writing a little bit but for himself he's probably never really stopped writing to be fair but you know Roger has been quite honest about this that you know so many projects come along that you know if otherwise there may have been four or five imperial drag albums or three or four Umajet albums or, you know, uh, more Moo Cookbook kind of stuff. So, you know, I think as fans, uh, that's the best we can ask for is that they are happy, healthy and staying creative. Um, also, I will be interviewing LA musician uh, Michael Mosbeck uh, about his band Strangelands. And now this is a name that you may not know, but he's been in various bands um, in LA over the years. And... Um, I like to, you know, he's he's become a friend and he's part of that extended LA scene, which I'm kind of, you know, very lucky to be kind of a part of, which is very nice. And I'll be seeing him and uh, many more out uh, out there when I go out there in September. Uh, so, yeah, um, I always said that this is a podcast for the open-minded and I want you to check out people who you don't know as well. And, you know, it's pretty cool. So that, that's why I like playing, uh, you know, more unknown musicians bands on well-known musicians interviews because you know it just opens up to more ears so i'm going to be playing your track right now from strangelands and their ep invisible which you can find at strangelandsband.bandcamp.com uh this is called invisible uh check it out and i will see you all next week thank you for checking in on pablo's poppin podcast <laughs> Can't see out.
Take the loaded gun, you could be mine